you know, maybe the biggest benefit that's going to come from us all going through this pandemic together is a realization that we actually like to be around other humans. Hope is being sure of something that you cannot yet fully see. Welcome to the Future of Work, the podcast that looks at, you've guessed it, the future of work. It's brought to you by Wonder for their blog, Chaos and Rocket Fuel. Wonder are productivity and human behavior specialists who use technology to help us humans on our digital journey from disruption to transformation. I'm Doug Folks, and along with Wonder CEO Claire Haydar, we regularly meet up with industry experts and mavericks to get their take on work in the future. This week, we're picking the brains of President and CEO of Workfront, Alex Schutman. Workfront is a web-based work management and project management software company that focuses on helping its customers transform their work experience. Alex himself has over 25 years experience developing and leading tech and noticeably SaaS companies. That's software as a service. He is also an author and as we'll hear now, a keen cyclist and dedicated family man. I'm curious, I'm, I'm jumping right into the piece that interests me most. What sports is occupying your time at the moment and, and what lessons are you learning from it? Well, the sport that occupies my time right now is road biking. I moved a few years ago from uh, running to road biking. And, you know, the thing about road biking um, that I've learned is the most fun part about road biking is flying downhill. And especially if you get to fly downhill with, you know, lots of S turns and, um, but to, to really go downhill, you have to go uphill. And, uh, and I think what I've been taking away from road biking is um, in the toughest moments when you're climbing your hardest hills, the hills that uh, have been uh, the boogeyman in your head for years, um, what you can tell yourself is if I get to the top of this, uh, I'm really going to enjoy the downhill. And so that's what I take away from road biking is when, when things are really tough, um, you can say to yourself, look, uh, when I get through this, um, I'm going to really enjoy uh, the other side. I'm going to move to a very, very personal side of your life, Alex, about Tara and Remy. They're a significant part of your journey. How has adoptive parenting shaped your view of work? You know, we have, uh, prior to adopting uh, our two daughters, uh, we have, uh, we had and we have two biological sons. And um, we, when we adopted our daughters, our sons uh, were uh, 15 years old and, um, and 12 years old. And the girls were eight and five years old. Um, and, you know, I had a boss once tell me, you can't learn to swim in the front yard. And, uh, you know, we've been through all the classes, uh, we've been book educated, and we thought we knew what we were doing. And then all of a sudden, you're trying to essentially stitch two families together. Um, and, uh, and everybody's their own person, right? And so uh, your biological kids may not have the same level of enthusiasm in the moment. Um, your adoptive kids, 
they didn't really have a choice in the matter. They got adopted. Um, but what I learned is that in all of our lives, every single year we have joy, joy and we have pain. Um, the first few years of putting our family together, uh, the joy was was joyier, if that's a word, and the pain was painier, right? But um, but it was still the same cycle that we all go through. That in our life we have joy, and in our life that we have uh, that we have pain. Um, and what I learned is that those really significant moments of pain, uh, when we put the family together. Um, also came with very, very special moments of joy. Uh, you know, when, when you have a biological child, your child attaches to you before they're really a sentient being. They attach to you when they're an infant. Um, and so a particular moment of joy for me was experiencing my younger daughter attached to me as a sentient being. She was, uh, she now has no accent, but uh, she was sitting in my lap and I was reading a magazine uh, and uh, she looked at me and looked up at me and said, I love you, Dodd. She used to call me Dodd. She said, I love you, Dodd. And, you know, we, we would say I love you, but they didn't, they didn't come speaking English. And so it was, it could be a form of a greeting for all I knew. And I kind of looked at her and said, I, I love you too, Tara. And then she looked up at me again and she said, no, I, I love you. Like she had just had this feeling of, the, of, of a human attachment that once again, we experience with our, with our um, biological children, but, our, but we don't see them experience it. And so you, you would get these very uh, amazing moments of intense joy like that but also intense pain. And so really what it's taught me, Claire, is that that's just part of life, right? Part of life is during the year, we're gonna have a lot of, we're gonna have some pain. We're also gonna have a lot of joy. And what we know is that uh, there's joy on the other side of pain, and that can uh, give us the endurance to go through the tough moments. Alex, uh, I'm just gonna add my welcome. Nice to, to chat to you today. Um, you spoke about joy there. Something else that you talk and you write a lot about is pride, uh, maybe because of the multiple experiences that you've had with various people along the way. Do you still believe that modern work has to embody pride as an essential part of the experience? Doug, I do. I think that, I think that human dignity is fulfilled by working. Uh, I, think that work is, uh, I think that work is good. When, when any of us look down at something that we've created, that, that we've created with our own hands, created with our mind, um, and see that it's good, it's just, it's hard to avoid uh, feeling proud of that. And not the bad kind of pride, you know, the, 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 the pride goeth before the fall kind of pride, but just the, the very good feeling about yourself when you've done good work. And, and so because of that, what I've long believed is if we can just barely accomplish three things in an organization, we'll, we'll release people. Uh, the first is, do people understand what their role is? Uh, the second is, do they, do they believe that their role matters? Do they believe that their role is connected to something? And then finally, do they have the opportunity to be proud of their 
uh, of their work. I saw it just last night with my youngest daughter doing homework. She was struggling with algebra. Uh, we worked through a problem. Uh, she did the second problem all by herself. And then she checked the answer in the back of the book and she saw that it was right. And it was impossible to take the smile off of her face. It's just, it's just in a moment like that, when you watch a human, it is impossible to remove the smile from their face. And so I just think that's our obligation at work is to figure out how we can help people feel proud of their work. When I read your thoughts about pride and when I actually went back into the archives of your blog and saw how often you spoke about it, it, it connected a dot in my millennial brain in that we actually need to remove all of that fluff and that extra that we've brought into the world of work today and we just need to go back to the basics of that very very simple component just work no matter what work it is if i am doing good work there's an element that fulfills my human dignity and i think we we've lost sight of that and, and we need to come back to it what's interesting is we did a study uh with the generation center for generational kinetics jason dorsey's the ceo of of that organization and, and we were uh, studying generations in the workplace um, and I'm happy to share all of the detail uh, with you on that, uh, Claire. There were a couple of myth-busting moments for us. Um, one of the questions that we asked is, what is the most appealing work culture value? So we expected, based upon the histrionics that are in the press, we expected that it would all be about a personal, you know, purpose and personal enjoyment and social and social responsibility. But it turns out. Uh, by far, the most important work culture value was caring. Does an organization uh, have values that promote positive working relationships, collaboration, teamwork, uh, and loyalty? 25% of millennials said that that was most important. The second biggest was learning, which is 17% of millennials. The third was purpose, which was 15%. So that was one of these myth-busting questions. And I, what I'm seeing is, uh, personally think that most of what we read in the press is just flat wrong. Uh, yeah. I, I, I see so much more commonality across generations in terms of people wanting to do great work, uh, people wanting to uh, have a purpose in their work, people wanting to uh, have collaboration uh, and teamwork uh, and, 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 uh, and build things with other people. Um, I think that's timeless. In many ways, the current environment that we find ourselves in this pandemic era has so significantly brought both of our collective visions um, to life. I want to move a little bit away from the excitement of that and the fact that the future of work is now our new reality. And I want to talk to you and ask you whether you're also sensing the deep weariness that a lot of people are feeling right now. I do see that. And I think there are two causes to that, uh, Claire. Um, one is human and one is technology. Uh, on the human side, um, you know, maybe the biggest benefit that's going to come from us all going through this uh, uh, pandemic together uh, is uh, a realization that we actually like to be around other humans, you know? And so I, it, whenever you see weariness that I think that comes from a lack of joy, 
And I do think that uh, working day in and day out without having the opportunity to be around other people in three dimensions uh, just robs us of some joy and that contributes to, uh, to some weariness. In addition to that though, Claire, what I'm seeing happen is that people um, are trying to use the wrong tools to do the wrong things. And just like if you try to cut down a tree with a hammer, it's just gonna make you really tired. Um, if you think about uh, when uh, the pandemic first hit, everybody bought what I would call their crisis tech stack. They yeah. bought uh, Slack and Zoom and, um, uh, or they activated Teams if they had Teams inside of their Microsoft license agreement. And those are all fantastic technologies. We use Slack internally, fantastic technologies, but they're made for synchronous work. They're, they're made for what you and I are doing right now, where we're uh, interacting with each other. They are not made for asynchronous work. Um, and so when we fill our days uh, with trying to do uh, work that's better done with technologies that help do uh, asynchronous work, like a work management platform, when we fill our days trying to do that work with platforms that are, are built for, for synchronous work, it's like trying to cut down a tree with a hammer and it just makes us tired. And, and I think that's one of the things that is creating weariness is, is uh, picking the wrong tool for the job. I'm going to jump in here, Alice. I'm going to just keep it on the, the global pandemic, if you don't mind. I know at Workfront, you've got a very strong leadership team. Can you sort of share with us if you've used a specific framework or model to help guide your team members through this whole situation we find ourselves in? You know, Doug, I don't know if it's a framework, but it's a couple of words. Um, uh, Napoleon once said that a, a leader is a dealer in hope. Um, and if you think about what hope is, uh, hope is being sure of something that you cannot yet fully see. Um, and, and so the first part of the framework that we've used is, is to just focus on that Look, uh, we need to be dealers in hope. Uh, that's not false hope, so that's not saying we're not in a difficult situation. That's not saying the world's not in a difficult situation. That's not, um, uh, so it's, it's not being uh, Pollyanna, if you will, uh, but, it, but it is very consciously speaking to the things that we can control uh, and speaking to the good outcomes that we believe are gonna happen because of uh, the people that we are, the culture that we have, the company that we have, the customers that we have. The second is transparency. We've just been really upfront the whole way about uh, the company, what's working within the company, the financials of the company. Um, uh, and, uh, and so really our framework has been those two words, if you will, Doug, uh, the words, how do we speak to an authentic hope? And then how do we make sure that we are transparent about what's going on? Alex, on, on that note where I'd like to um, take the conversation from there specific to that is, has your typical workday changed because of this framework that you guys have instituted and because of the need for, for hope has, has become so critical in this period? Claire, I spend a lot of time with other CEOs and we compare notes about what's going on. Um, I, my work days changed, uh, maybe not the specific day, but my work has changed a couple of ways. You know, if you think about 
the the Monday after George Floyd was killed um, was measurably there, there, there's a I forget the the name of the organization, but they measure emotions on Twitter. And that Monday was the saddest day in the history of Twitter. What, what several of my peers and I have had conversations around is, um, at least in the states in any case, uh, many of the institutions that people turn to in, in moments like uh, George Floyd uh, uh, getting killed, Breonna Taylor getting killed, um, Amin Aubrey getting killed. In, in moments like that, uh, uh, people had institutions in their lives to go to, uh, to have conversations about that, to sort out their own feelings, to uh, understand what can be done. Some of those institutions have uh, maybe faded in terms of importance in uh, in the communal life, at least within the states. And in a lot of cases, uh, our companies are uh, f not filling all of that because we can't, but our companies are filling some of that. And so we have a responsibility uh, if, if we've been uh, blessed to be uh, asked to be in a leadership position, um, we have the responsibility to step up in those moments and try to uh, uh, build somewhat of a community that uh, that can process these, uh, you know, incredible sad moments for all of us. That segue is so well because what you've just said in terms of creating those spaces, you know, where teams can mourn, process, talk about, etc. Is it's a type of transparency, and and this is something that that's critical to the book that you ha wrote um, about two years ago. You talk about five types of transparency and how those interplay to create meaningful work. I personally feel that transparency is a very misunderstood concept, and therefore not harnessed the way it could potentially be. So, can you maybe take us right back to definitions? Um, and talk to us about what your definition of transparency is, but then also lay out for us what these five types of transparency are and why they're so important in, in creating meaningful work. Yeah, maybe the easiest way I can define it uh, is for anybody that has seen the movie uh, A Few Good Men, there is the, the climactic scene in the courthouse uh, between Tom Cruise's character and... Uh, Jack Nicholson's character, Jack Nicholson plays Colonel Jessup, right? And, and in the moment, uh, he basically says, you can't handle the truth. You can't handle the truth. And so uh, there, there is this, there can be a fundamental bias that you start to have as a leader where you start saying to yourself, well, I really can't tell them the truth. Uh, I need to. I need to shape the truth for them, um, and that's actually a, a pretty demeaning attitude if you think about it. That's that's basically saying that um, I'm smarter than you. I'm better than you, um, and so I'm going to have to give you less information uh, because you can't deal with all the information. And what I found is the opposite is, is true, Claire, that secret strategies don't work really well. Um, yeah. and, 
and people can handle the truth. People can, I mean, they can handle uh, what's going on uh, in a business. And, and frankly, there, there's more ownership uh, about the mission. There's more ownership about the business objectives. There's more ownership about the task. There's more ownership uh, uh, in the work if you share with people why you're trying to accomplish something, uh, what it means to the organization, what it means to them, how they plug in, uh, plug into it. And, and that notion of transparency drives our technology investment. We just uh, released a product called um, Workfront Align, which is a, a product that allows uh, for goal visibility and goal transparency and goal cascading throughout the organization. And uh, I've had uh, customers and prospects ask me, so, so you actually open up your goals to the whole company? Absolutely, it's their company too. They should see what's, what's going on. So for me, it comes back to that Colonel Jessup statement. And when you listen to Colonel Jessup, um, do you agree with him or do you not agree with him? And whatever side you fall on drives how you think about transparency. How does that relate that into a typical work day for you? Alex, what's your, what's your day look like when you're being transparent and leading? I'm spending more time now than I used to in uh, purposeful, uh, more broadcast communications. For example, um, we have three stra uh, strategic pillars for our company. Uh, the first is to serve the enterprise. The second is to uh, build a enterprise application platform that we call an operational system of record. Um, and the third is to multiply advocates. And I'm right now I'm I'm shooting a video series that's you know three to five minute videos on each one of these strategic pillars. Kind of going back to okay, what what does it really mean to serve the enterprise? Um, and I think in the past I would have done a lot of that in various town hall meetings or one-on-ones or when I'm walking the hall and stuff like that. And so what I'm finding, Doug, is that there's more of my day that is spent trying to keep us as a team together on what we're trying to accomplish using various communication uh, tools. Um, what I'm doing less of, which I miss, is getting on an airplane and going and seeing customers. So I'm seeing customers on Zoom calls, but, but there is something different about being able to be in a customer and with a customer in their location. There's a level of intimacy where you get to learn more about uh, their organizational dynamics, what they're trying to accomplish, what's getting in the way. Um, and so I miss that. I, I look forward to that coming back uh, uh, because there's a texture to customer intimacy that uh, I'm personally missing right now uh, with, uh, with this work environment. That is interesting because it sort of leads a little bit. It could, could be the answer to my next question because now, work has changed considerably for just about everyone the last few months. If you had a magic wand, what would you change again in, in a fundamental way moving forward? And is it going to visit more clients <laughs> or customers? Well, that's certainly, I would, I would do that. I've been thinking about buying a, an airplane seat and just putting it in a room in my house because I used to be able to do some good thinking in an airplane seat. Um, I tell you, the thing that I would, if I could wave a magic wand, what I would want to get rid of is conspiracy theories at work. I, I talk about this in, uh, in the book that we wrote in terms of the transitive law of conspiracy theories, which goes as follows. Um, 
Uh, all management activity in a company is mysterious, and all mysterious activity in a company creates conspiracy theories. Therefore, all management activity creates conspiracy theories. Um, <laughs> and it's just most of the stuff that people make up that happens in a company, or they, they make up that is happening in the company, is actually not even happening at all. So we're doing something very interesting in Wonder. We're actually rolling out, um, I'm not sure if you've read this book, Lencioni's The Advantage. Ironically, I'm talking to Pat later today. So we've, we've actually had a long relationship with the table group. They helped, uh, they helped us do our work around culture. Uh, so I, I know the advantage very well. And, and if you actually look down, uh, Claire, interesting that you say that because if you looked at the book that we handed out to our employees at the beginning of the year, um, it, see if these words uh, sound familiar to you. So uh, the, the book uh, walks through and it says, why do we exist? Then the next question says, how do we behave? Yeah. Then the next question says, um, what do we actually do for a living? Uh, then the next question asks, how are we going to succeed? And those are the three strategic pillars that I, uh, that I just shared. And then we talked through our uh, defining objectives. So we actually used the advantage methodology in building our business plan. So those six questions that, that Pat lays out in his book, we actually have it in a one pager and it's, it's part of our company onboarding. It's part of everything that we do in the company. But what I wanted to share about what we were doing is, so we've actually tiered our entire team because the book has had such a big impact in our company that we actually, we've now adopted the attitude of every single person in the company needs to be a leader. And so we're actually rolling it out across the entire company. I'm hoping in our case that this experiment that we're running where we're you know, developing this radical transparency around even opening up like the financial model and how it's built will enable our team to understand gray and therefore minimize those conspiracy theories that do come up in companies. I think that's fantastic that y'all are doing that. And I, I predict it's gonna be a, a huge lift in performance for the organization. And that gets back to the, the Colonel Jessup statement, right? You're basically yes. saying, I think people are smart enough to figure this out, right? And if they all understand it, they're gonna make better decisions. Talking about your book again, um, you referenced the military term embrace the suck. Do we as a modern workforce do this enough in your opinion? I don't think so. I really don't, right? Um, the, uh, I got the notion of embrace the suck from uh, talking to Mark McGinnis, who is a um, retired SEAL commander. And what he was sharing with me is, you know, if this team, if, if 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 there's a team, and and they're neck deep in muck, crossing a a body of water, right? And and if one person starts talking about how this really sucks, it starts to get infectious with everybody else. But if if instead the entire team just embraces that it sucks. Uh, and that they have to go through it, then the, the team will get through that moment in a, in a much healthier manner. And 
you know, we complain about the tools that we're using or we'll complain about a lack of information or we'll complain about somebody didn't update us on something. And so, you know, we're offended by that. And, you know, if, if you think about the, the things that send people sideways in most, uh, most white collar work, they're massive first world problems, right? Um, and instead of us just letting us run, letting it run off our back, you know, like like water off a duck's back, and moving on to more important things, we just get completely wrapped around the axle on it. So I, I don't think that we do embrace the suck that well, Doug, in uh, in modern work. I think we let little things uh, knock us off our game uh, quite a bit. I have noticed, however, that one of the one of the odd blessings about us all going through this pandemic is things that used to bug people, little things that used to bug people aren't bugging them that much anymore because they've gone through some big things. Moving on to you again, Alex, what new skills are you working on and learning at present? For me, it is in the in using the different uh, communication mediums to match the needs of, of folks in the organization. Um, we've got a, pro I'll give you an example, we've got a project going on internally where we're completely reimagining how to do sales and marketing, right? How do we create this amazing buying experience that's, that's such a great buying experience that people just tell other people about the buying experience? Um, and we've put together a cross-functional team that are, that are focused on that. And I'm watching generational differences in terms of media consumption, where in some meetings, the team will go ahead and record the meeting for their other team members. And those team members may watch that video uh, at, uh, at 2x speed. If you look at my generation, we would have never considered that the way that we were gonna consume information is to take a video and watch it at 2x speed, and that's how we were going to get the information imparted into our, into our brain. What I'm learning a lot right now, Claire, is how, how do I learn these different communication mediums if it's my responsibility to meet somebody in the organization where they are, that means I need to understand their communication preferences. That means I need to learn their communication preferences and I need to deliver information in their communication preferences. So that's probably been one of the biggest things for me is learning different communication channels and how to take advantage of them. Alex, I could honestly carry on talking to you for a very long time. And I also in many ways wish I could be a fly on the wall in your conversation with Pat later today. But in closing, I really do want to have a conversation about Workfront specifically. It's all about modern work management. This is an area that both you and I are very passionate about. Can you, to wrap this podcast up for us, define what modern work is and why it's so important to understand that it is significantly different from work as we knew it in the past? You know, if you, if you think about it, the question is, why is work so hard right now? Right, like what, what's, what challenges productivity right now? Um, and you have to start by thinking about the five elements that have always been in work, right? The first is there is somebody who has to do the work. Uh, the second is the work has some time boundaries to it. 
the third is the work has some location boundaries. The fourth is that um, you have some tools that you need to accomplish the work. Um, and then the fifth is what is the level of in interdependence? Um, and so if, if you put all that together and you go back uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years to our earliest ancestors and you think about the work at that point in time uh, of somebody uh, hunting, right? Uh, the, that work was, it was clear who the worker was and it was clear what their job was. The time was very specific uh, in terms of, of when you could do the work. The location, there was only one location to do the work. There was one tool to do the work, and the interdependence was pretty low, right? I mean, maybe uh, there, were, there were parts of, of, of the tribe that was flushing out the game, and there was parts of the tribe that was hunting the game, but the interdependence was pretty low. Now, when you think about all, f what's making work hard right now is all five of those things are changing all at once, right? Time, it's not nine to five work, it's, it's not even just in time work, it's all the time. The, the location, the work can be done anywhere. The tools are infinite and they're changing every single minute. And when you think about interdependence, there's, there's very little work that one person can complete all of the work. So modern work was hard already because all five of these things were changing all at once. And then the pandemic, we just, we just poured gasoline on the fire uh, and, and made it even harder. So that's really what's, what's happening, Claire, is the five elements of work have never changed. When any single one of them changed, it made work hard. And now all five of them are changing all at once. And that's why it's hard to manage modern work. It's the old acronym that came from Warren Bennis when we talk about what is a VUCA world, right? Volatil volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Um, and, uh, and that's what we're leading through right now. Yeah, exactly that. Alex, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you to both you and Doug for joining us today. And I really am sure, I mean, just from the conversation, there's so many more follow-up conversations that we can have. So thank you for taking the time. Thank you for sharing your profound wisdom with us. And thank you for the impact that you're making in the world right now. It's important and we need leaders like you. Well, Claire, thanks for the opportunity and thanks for what y'all do at, uh, at Wonder. Uh, we get a lot of joy working with y'all um, and your level of thought leadership and capability uh, makes a huge difference uh, to our customers. So uh, I'm very appreciative that y'all decided uh, to be business partners with Workfront. Thank you so much. And thank you, Alex, from my side. It's been great meeting and chatting with you. All right, great to meet y'all. Meet you too, Doug. And there you have it. A real hands-on look at what modern work is all about today. If you've enjoyed this podcast and found it of value, please don't be a stranger. Make sure you pop back for more top of mind conversations. Just a reminder for more information about Wonder and the integration services that they supply, you can visit their website. That's wndyr.com. 
And so from me, Doug Folks, and from Chaos and Rocket Fuel, stay safe, and we'll see you soon.